What a difference. The Talkbuster Podcast. Hi, I'm Chris Chipman. You may remember me from such podcasts as the Chipman Brothers Tangent and Creating Geeks, a parenting podcast of great responsibility. I'm here to bring you back to the late 90s, early 2000s, a time of amrays and clamshells, a time of late fees and VHS tapes being replaced by DVDs, a time of stale gumballs and overpriced candy. Yes, that's right. I am talking about the time of Blockbuster Video, the Walmart of the video rental industry, the mom-and-pop video store killer, the corporate big-choice video store that everybody loved to hate. Blockbuster is mostly gone now. Kids today will never know the crazy Friday and Saturday nights with lines wrapped around the store to rent the next big movie. No more will regulars, who are in the know, arrive at 10 a.m. on Tuesdays to snatch up the new rentals that week before the weekend rush. Most of all, no longer will young movie geeks like myself have the memories I, and many others like me, made while working there. You see, under all of the corporate evil and bad practices, Blockbuster was a home, a comfort, a place where I made lifelong friends and even met my wife. It is because of these memories that I, and I'm sure many of you, have that the Talkbuster podcast was created, a place for me and others to share our memories of what once was, of the before time, of the long, long ago. I'm looking forward to see where this goes, how it evolves. Join me, won't you? Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Talk Buster podcast. As always, I'm your host, Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. Before we get into our incredibly special guest today, you guys are are really in for a treat here. Um, I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons, your Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin C.V., Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, Collaborating Online, Alex Shaw, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krause, Little Nikki, Robert V. Aldrich, Aaron Moriarty, Carolyn Thompson, Scott Arcuri, and Shore Hansen Gusted. I would do this all day for free and gladly would if all of you, due to pandemic issues and everything else, needed to stop supporting. But your support means the world and it allows me to uh, keep finding time to do this when I could easily be doing my very boring day job. Um, and with that, um, I would like to welcome on today's very special guest, Alan Payne. Introduce yourself. Tell people who you are. Uh, thanks. Thanks, uh, Chris. Uh, Alan Payne, of course, I was, a, I was a franchisee for Blockbuster for 25 years. Uh, before that, I com- actually competed with Blockbuster when I worked for a company called HEB, it's a grocery company. It's the largest grocery company in Texas. And uh, we actually had freestanding stores, much like Blockbuster, in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, competed very successfully against Blockbuster, but HEB decided to sell those stores in 1993. And it's that time that I, I left HEB and joined the Blockbuster franchise group. Uh, eventually bought those stores from them in 2000. And uh, ran those stores until we closed the very last one in August of 2018, which was uh, eight years after Blockbuster filed bankruptcy. Uh, we, ran, we ran the company completely differently than Blockbuster ran their stores. Uh, and during the same time frame that they were, went into a death spiral that they never came out of, uh, we were still growing our company. And 
actually during the, the years 2000 to 2007, which was really the, the years that Blockbuster went into a, into a decline they never came out of, we tripled the profit in our company in those same years. So, yeah, so, and I, and I don't think it's because we were a bunch of geniuses. We just paid attention and uh, really did believe that a Blockbuster store had more going for it th than not. And that just because Netflix was there and later Redbox was there, and of course before that Hollywood Video was there, we felt like we could, we could stand on our own and compete successfully with them, and we did. And had Blockbuster not been uh, a roadblock for us, uh, we'd probably still have a few open stores open today. And we're not, we didn't have our head in the sand. We knew that Blockbuster was going to face its challenges from uh, the internet eventually. But I think what most people don't realize is Blockbuster was in financial trouble even before Netflix existed as a company. And certainly before it existed as, a, as the streaming company everybody knows today. Blockbuster was basically done before Netflix ever streamed a movie. Yeah. Even, even working there, that was very, very much visible when we were in the corporate stores. They were, they were shaking in their boots long before that. And, and yeah, I, always, and I, never, I, ne I never thought that was necessary. I, I thought, you know, Netflix had some strengths, but they also had a lot of weaknesses. And, yeah. and, you know, and the, you know, they couldn't, they really couldn't compete very well on new releases uh, because, the economics of it just didn't work for them because the, the, the DVDs would be in the mail too long or sitting in people's yep. homes too long. It was, it was, you know, they did not have good availability of new releases and that should have been something that Blockbuster fully exploited, but I don't think that they did. And of course, Netflix built their business on the back of older movies. And that's, they knew that's the only way they could do it because they couldn't compete on new releases. So they figured out ways to get people interested in old movies and old TV shows. And that's what they built the business on. And uh, Blockbuster didn't have many of those. No. And, and as, as things went on, they had even less because they started having stores and that's what they got rid of first. I, I always um, remind people how sad it was you know, when I left the company in 2008 to, you know, finish up my grad degree and go out into the world, walking into the store I used to work in and seeing it half the size and seeing most of what they had there wasn't movies. It was, it started looking like a Newbury Comics or a Spencer's Gifts that also rented a few movies. And it's like, yeah. that's not Blockbuster. Blockbuster was, it was a corporatized version of a specialty store, of a thing, place you went because like-minded people that liked the same stuff as you worked there. Yeah. And that experience is why people kept coming back, not the trinkets and the, you know, everything. It was, no, I want to come in and I want to, if I come in and can't find the movie that I came there for, I want someone that's going to tell me what else I might like, not some algorithm. You know, yeah. I, I want to hear, I want to converse with someone. And we used to go when I was a teenager and just hang out, you know? Yeah. And I think well, that's a huge missing part. Of, you of know the, 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 the sad thing is, and having been there to see it, the, see it all, everything that you saw in 2008 had all been tried multiple times before. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we even tried it. At, I mean, think of us back at HEB in those days when we had access to a grocery store's distribution system. Uh, we tried everything. Uh, 
because uh, we could. Uh, and we, we found very early on that going to a video store was not that much different than people going to a movie theater. They went there to watch a movie and they went and they went there to, to get some snacks. And for the life of the video store business and Blockbuster, 90% uh, of the business was those two, those two things. Yeah. And, and, and every attempt to try to turn it into something else, and that happened multiple times uh, and failed every time. But every, every time they tried it, it made the business worse instead of better. And the sad thing for me is, is that when, when Jim Keyes took over after John Antiaco left in 2007, it was just natural for him coming from 7-Eleven to think he could do it. Uh, yep. and, and, I, and I understand why he thought that. But had he been around and had the experience base all those years when we had all tried it uh, and knew it didn't work. And we tried to tell him that, you know, come, after, after a long career in 7-Eleven, he was just convinced he could do it. And, it. and, of course, it didn't work. Yeah, it's wild. Um, and, you know, to let people know, yeah, Alan Payne, you know, you can watch the last blockbuster documentary. You're in it. That's where I saw you for the very first time. But I had heard all about you. You know, the Alaska stores were in the news before anyone was talking about the Bend, Oregon store. Right. Um, you know, I remember people saying, oh, Chris, have you heard about the last store in Alaska? Have you ever been there? You know, or the last stores? And I'm like, no, but I was reading up on it. And everyone thought those were the last in the world. That was the, you know, yeah. and that, that was the story. And um, I remember seeing, you know, reading all the articles with you in it and everything. But isn't it great that now, you know, why Alan is here on top of just wanting to talk about Blockbuster is you're writing a book about it. And whether you're listening to this, um, you know, after the book's been out for a bit or whether it just came out, this book is called Built to Fail, Inside Story of Blockbuster's Inevitable Bust. Um, I'll give a quick description of it just because I like this description. It says, how does an iconic brand die? For more than two decades, Blockbuster was America's favorite way to watch movies. Millions of customers visited more than 8,000 stores around the globe every week, providing more data about movie audiences than anyone in history had ever owned. If any company should have predicted the disruptive forces coming down the pike, it was Blockbuster. But as new threats emerged, none of its five CEOs had answers, and the company collapsed long before its time. Built to Fail tells the complete inside story of Blockbuster's meteoric rise and catastrophic fall. Beneath the surface of explosive growth lay a shaky foundation of financial difficulty, tunnel vision, and missed opportunities. Written by today's guest, Alan Payne, the man who built the longest-lasting blockbuster franchise chain in the country, built to fail as a cautionary tale for today's disruptive marketplace, explaining why blockbuster was broken was a broken company long before Netflix ever streamed a single movie. And I just that description is perfect. And I'm only halfway through the book, but man, does that not set the stage for what you provided here? So, uh, let's talk about it. What what um what made you want to write this, Alan? Um. <clears throat> Well, it's been the video business has been my has been the bulk of my career life. You know, I I didn't get into it through traditional means. I got I was working for HEB when they decided to get into it and they put me in charge of running the stores, the the video stores. And like a lot of people back in the 80s that got into it, we just fell in love with the business. It was it was fun. It was 
it was challenging, but I think it was relatively easy to understand. It was a much simpler business than the grocery store business, that's for sure. Oh, and, God. And uh, which is an unbelievably complex business, very competitive business. But I think what I learned in the grocery business served me very well in the video business. And, and because we were a small, uh, a, a small group within a big company, we pretty much got to call our own shots. And, uh, you know, when they decided to sell the stores, uh, I kind of fall in love with, with calling my own shots. And I didn't really want to go back and get, get lost in a big corporate, corporate organization. So that's, that's one of the reasons I decided to leave then and, and join the, the Blockbuster franchise group. Um, but, you know, I think, I think the Blockbuster story, uh, everything that you just read about what happened to it, the reason I think the reason the book is important is because it puts the entire story in context, and you really have to go back to the beginning to understand the way Blockbuster was founded, the kind of company it was, and how why that created such a challenge for the company to adapt to things as they were going forward. Uh, so as I as I get into the end of our of our uh, store life and I guess we were in 2016 2017 we finally decided okay this is really going to end we can't keep this going much longer so that's when I started thinking well I've, I've had the perspective the entire life of the company uh, the wrong story is out there Netflix yep. streaming did not kill Blockbuster I didn't feel like the, the proper story had been told and uh, so I, I felt it was a, it was a, it was a, it was a challenge. I wanted to do it. I didn't know how to do it. Uh, I'm the kind of person that can't go get a traditional book deal from a publisher. Uh, so I gradually kind of put together all the resources, figured out how I wanted to do it, found a, a great company here in Austin that helps people like me that want to tell a story, but don't understand the publishing business. And it's called a company called scribe media. Um, uh, so if anybody out there wants to write a book, they're the ones to, to work with. So, awesome. uh, uh, so, you know, it's been, a, it's been like a three-year project. I spent at least a year and a half just doing research to make sure I remembered everything properly and also to, to, to really try to piece the story together and connect the, the dots so I could tell it in a way that would be to understandable to somebody that was not there all those years. So it just kind of gradually came together as, okay, I want to tell it. This is the best way to tell it. And just through a whole lot of time and effort and help from other people and putting the information together, it, it came together. And, uh, and, it, and it comes out on March the 9th. And I think for somebody that's not an author, and I'm certainly not one, uh, you know, you always have fear of, did you, is it, is it readable? Can, is, are people going to enjoy it? But I, th I think it's a pretty easy read. And it, I, tried to, I tried to write it in a story form. There's a lot of, of information in it. But the, the people that have read it think it's a pretty easy read. And, and if you're, uh, if, particularly if you're interested in the business like you are. The, what I, what I want to find out is people that really aren't all that interested in the business side of it 
is it, is it going to be something that they're interested in? Because it, it's definitely the business side of the story. Right. I think it, but I think it's, a, it's written in a way that even if you're not all that interested in business, but you're interested in Blockbuster, you might find the story very interesting because well, it, 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 puts, it puts the business face on something that most people experienced uh, for their mo most, you know, for 10, 15, 20 years. Right. And that's, I mean, you, you hit on a point of like why this sh uh, show has been so incredible for me because it's like I spent eight years or seven years, you know, hawking videotapes to the blockbuster. And, you know, I worked CSR all the way up to store manager and you feel, you know, you know, a side of the company. And the best thing about this show is it's allowed me to connect with people that were on a completely other level and know what the gears and everything were really like behind it. And yeah. even some work there for selling, it changes my, my misconceptions about what was going on. Cause you know, we always used to say the store was such a fun place to work and you know, we were what made blockbuster great in the corporate stores because we ran them like they were, you know, our own individual comic shop, you know, like where, where people had mm -hmm. a very, unique experience in our store even though blockbuster was trying to be a mcdonald's that hawked videos where every experience was the same and um when i talk to franchisee people they seem to always talk about the stores more like we talked about them working there because we they actually saw what the customer wanted instead of what the numbers told them that they wanted or you know like you said jim keys thinking it could be run like a 7-eleven um and I think one of the best parts about the book and what I've read of it so far is that it puts a time and place to everything. So people that lived it can know this is what was going on then. Wow. And people that are reading it as a history account that maybe weren't born until 2001, 2002, you know, can read it and go, you know, I knew of Blockbuster as a meme or, you know, something here. And wow, this this was like how many people today can you tell Blockbuster had 8,000 stores, 9,000 stores? They go, no way. Yeah. Right. They didn't live it. I think the best thing about your book is the very first line of your first, of your um, first uh, main chapter, America goes to the video store. Cause this is something that I don't think a lot of people know. Most people don't remember a world where you couldn't rent movies. Most people don't remember a world where you couldn't just tape a movie off TV. And it's this right. quote from Valenti, um, who, who did great things and awful things all at the same time. Uh, I say to you that the VCR is to the American film producer and the American public as the Boston Strangler is to a woman home alone. Jack, <laughs> president of the Motion Picture Association of America. What people don't realize is that the film industry tried to stop VCRs and home video from happening. They felt people were stealing their product. Yeah, they tried to outlaw the VCR entirely because right. they did not not just, you know, it came in two phases. They initially tried to outlaw the VCR because that was, and, and really this sounds like so yesterday now, but that was the first opportunity that people had the opportunity to record something. Yeah. Before that, nobody could. Well, the studios didn't thought that was a, a violation of copyright laws, that they completely owned that content and nobody could duplicate it without their permission. So they, 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 try, they tried to outlaw the VCR. And believe it or not, it, it, they almost were successful. 
Uh, yeah. The, in fact, in fact, the 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 appeals court that they were in uh, did side with them. So it wound up in the Supreme Court, and unbelievably, it it was made legal by only a five to four vote. Four wow. four justice four justices would have would have preferred the VCR never exist. So it it barely passed. And of course, I tell the story in there of how Mr. Rogers actually testified before the Supreme Court on that, yep. which, uh, which was I thought was a fascinating story. The Mr. Rogers. And then after 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 that, since the, the studios had lost that battle, they went straight to Congress since they couldn't get they couldn't get the law changed. They went straight to Congress to get a new law passed. <laughs> that would that that would that would have banned rental, and by that time the rental business is already a two or three billion dollar industry, and 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 the and the it, the the proposed law never got to a vote, and it was over. And at that point, the video industry was fully legal and born. And I and I think it's very it's it's very important to note that because of that environment back then when there was question as to whether or not the video store would even be legal, it did not attract traditional retailers. It didn't attract uh, large companies that would have normally been chasing a business of this size and this popular. So what it, 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 it wound up getting built by relatively small entrepreneurial type people, many of whom had never run a business before. And, and that's what, that's what, that's how it got built. And, by the time Blockbuster came along, it was already a pretty big business, but there, were no, there was nobody out there that really comprehended how big it could get. And that's when Wayne Heisinger entered the picture and changed everything. And for those of you who don't know who Wayne Heisinger is, Wayne Heisinger founded Waste Management, yep. uh, which is still the largest garbage company in the world. He founded AutoNation, which is the largest car uh, company in the in the country. He he did not actually found Blockbuster, but he bought it when it only had about twenty stores and built it into what we know today. Uh, he he bought and sold hundreds and hundreds of businesses in his career. He was he was the only he was the only American to ever found three Fortune five hundred companies. Oh. He was I mean he is the he is the classic entrepreneur, but the problem with Heisinger, as I learned in all the research, is that he was obsessed with growth and nothing else. Yep. And, and because Blockbuster was so unbelievably successful in its early years, uh, it, it never felt like it needed to become a better company that was focused on operations and focused on competition and focused on focusing on getting a little bit better every day. That just didn't interest them. And coming from a company like HEB, which was a, a you know a cutthroat company industry like the grocery business, that's all we ever thought about is what can we do better? Because if we don't, somebody else will. And when I got to Blockbuster and I found that not only did they they just didn't have any interest in it. They had no interest in talking to me about anything that I'd been doing on the other side, competing with them. Uh, and throughout the life of Blockbuster, they had a, almost an impossible time giving 
giving anybody else credibility other than themselves. And that's why they missed out on Hollywood videos rise. They missed out on Netflix's rise. They missed out on Redbox's rise. They never paid serious attention to any of those companies until it was too late. Yeah, they, they saw themselves as so big and widespread. I mean, why, why wouldn't you? Like, if, if you were a general person in the public on the street, I still drive around thinking on the next corner I'm going to see a blockbuster. They were yeah. it, It's all that was there. People didn't say, I'm going to go rent a movie. They say, I'm going to blockbuster. You know, but but and, but 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 don't forget, Blockbuster was never more than about forty percent of the business. Exactly. It, it, exactly. I mean, it, it it was it was by far the biggest, but it was a lot less than half of the industry. So Would there you, were competitors out there, and and so the the visual the visibility to the company was we're huge. It doesn't matter. We have no competition, and that's what that's what killed them. A lot of it because, like you said. Um, all they needed to do is adapt. You wrote in here, the only thing Blockbuster ever did better than any of their competition was open more stores. And I recently spoke before they inevitably went belly up. I spoke to someone from Family Video and they had put the same thing. I said, you know, how does Family Video still have 500 stores, um, you know, before the pandemic and is down to 200 and still functioning? And they said, well, you know, one is paying attention to the industry, and that was something that Blockbuster didn't do. And they said, two, we're we're a property ownership company. Like the the people that own Family Video own the buildings they stick the Family Videos in and lease the rest of it. Blockbuster leased a lot of their property, and other places did too. You know what I mean? So they go, your overhead's insane, and the minute that the market dips away from you, you can't afford to pay people anymore. And it's like that's an interesting thing. I never even thought of that. You know? yeah, they, they, they had a different take on the business. It's interesting. Their business model was similar to the way we, we ran the business. Uh, they had larger inventories and, and they were priced less. The yeah. big difference was that they owned almost all of their stores. Now, that can be a blessing and a curse. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and I think really good retailers do a blend of both. But uh, in our case in our little company, uh, we didn't have the resources to, to do both. So we didn't have the money to go out and buy real estate and we didn't want to be a real estate development company. So we leased all of our stores too. But, but the thing is you're, you know, it gives you a lot of flexibility to move stores when you need to. Uh, so there's good and bad to, to both sides. I always felt like the video business, needed to be primarily a business where you lease the stores. Uh, mm -hmm. And when you got, and when you got an opportunity to invest in real estate that you knew was going to be great for the long term, you know, if you've got the capital to do it, go for it. But in a lot of cases, uh, you know, you need the flexibility to move and Blockbuster uh, had that flexibility, but that's one of the things they did so poorly as as sites would get old and tired because the the retail traffic patterns in a city would change which inevitably happens uh they it didn't seem like they wanted to spend the hundred thousand dollars or so so to move the store and make it better and that's one of the things that we did in our company we 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 were aggressive about relocating stores that were getting tired
but, That's but I, I think I, before we leave this part of it, I want to make sure that, that, that the point gets made that, that the, the culture of Blockbuster was established in those early years. Uh, and, and it was a culture that was totally focused on growth, ignored competition, and really didn't have a lot of curiosity about, about what made the business work. And, and that led to a whole lot of problems in terms of back office management systems. Uh, they weren't looking at what was going on at the, at the rental level in any, in any level of detail. Uh, and that's what shocked me most when I came to Blockbuster. I, was, I asked what I thought were some very simple questions about, you know, how much do this, does the comedy section on the floor rent? And they couldn't tell you. And yeah. Couldn't, and, and couldn't when the, when, the, when the stores closed 20 years later, they still couldn't tell you. Yeah. Uh, they, I mean, they're, they're, they're coming from a grocery company. The level of detail that they had to manage those stores was just archaic. And, and, the, and, and, and unbelievably, it never changed. And, but, but, but it's important to remember that Heisinger sold the company to Viacom in 1994 for $8.4 billion. He had hit, his initial investment was $18 million. Eight years later, eight years later was worth $8.4 billion. And, and that was in 1994. The business was never worth even a, a small fraction of that after. Five years later, the company spun off to the public and it was valued at $2.6 billion. That was in 1999. Netflix was a tiny little company at the time. So yep. if they were just starting to, in fact, they had just started subscription in 1999. It, it, Netflix was a non-issue in 1999 and Blockbuster had already lost almost three-fourths of its value. So if nothing else, that should tell everybody that this notion of Netflix is what killed Blockbuster is just, is just a complete falsehood. It's a total falsehood. Wow. So you, I, I think this helps move forward into the story because um, it's just a fascinating one. You have these seven lessons learned about the story of Blockbuster at the end of the book. And, um, this seventh one is ringing true from what you're talking about there. Don't just talk about the future, plan for it. You wrote in the early days, Wayne talked about how Blockbuster would transition to whatever came next in home entertainment. And all the other CEOs said the same thing, but none ever invested in it. They, they said it, but never did it. So instead of leading, Blockbuster was always content to be a bystander while innovators define the future. And you hit it right there. In 1994, an $8 billion sale should say, you know, they're buying it for this much because it's going to grow. And instead it dropped by three quarters in yes. five years. Yeah. And, and absolutely insane. And the, the thing is, they, they, I, I think the assumption, I know it was in Heisinger's days, the assumption was when something better comes along, we'll just buy it. Uh, they didn't feel like they needed to create it. Uh, they would just, they would just buy it when it happened. That was, that was Heisinger's whole approach to business is he wasn't going to actually build a business, build a business model. He would go, just go buy the business. If it was successful, he'd just go buy it. 
And that's what many of us wonder, you know, when Blockbuster got an opportunity to buy Netflix in 2000 for $50 million. Uh, I mean, we've always, number one, we've always wondered why the heck didn't Blockbuster do it? And number two, if Heising had still been there, we all think that he would have bought it because that was just his nature to buy things that represented a threat. But John Antiaco, who was the CEO of Blockbuster at the time, didn't, didn't recognize as Netflix as a threat in 2000 and totally passed on the opportunity. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's crazy. And to have lived and been there during it, it was wild how, you know, crazy even at the store level we thought that was. It's like, man, because then Blockbuster showed up and said, oh, we have a DVD by mail business too. And it's like, yeah, you, you could have bought Netflix, had that, and still done it the same way. You could have had the people can drop their movies off at the store and then get a coupon for a free rental and that'll drive foot traffic. But you immediately gave up half of that whole world, you know, at least to a company that you could own. Um, yeah. You wrote, if you're going to do it, do it be the best. Of course, um, I, I, I think we all recognize that it's easy to be a Monday morning quarterback right now and yes. say, well, well, that was a crazy decision. You should have bought them. But the, the uh, you know, it's always easy to say that. But, but what I like to, the story I like to tell about that and, and the reason I just don't think Blockbuster was ever really tuned in to what was going on is that John Antiaco often said back in those days that the reason he was not interested in Netflix was because he didn't think they would ever grow past 3 million subscribers, yep. which, he could, which he considered to be a relatively small number versus Blockbuster's 50 million membership. Well, the, pro the problem with that logic is that 3 million subscribers was equivalent to the active membership of about 700 Blockbuster stores. So if you just back up and do the math, it, it, the, uh, 700 Blockbuster stores would generate a lot more than $50 million in cash every year. And that's what yeah. was being offered to him. So I, I, what I never understood was, number one, just the math told you that you needed to look at it more closely. And number two, Reed Hastings, who was in the room talking about this, along with Mark Randolph, uh, you know, they understood how successful this business could be. In fact, the reason they were there is because they had run out of money because it was growing too fast. Yep. So uh, that's the only reason they were there. And because they could, they didn't have access to any new capital because of the dot-com bust that had just happened. So the capital markets had shut down. They had created a, a, a business model with, with subscription that would prove to be not only a game changer for them, it changed the world. And, and they were there because they were growing so fast, they couldn't keep up with it. So if you're, if you're a competitor of that company, wouldn't you be a little bit concerned about somebody that was growing so fast that they didn't have the money to, to keep up? But there's a lot wow. of noise on your end, uh, Oh, I don't know why that happened. Is it, is it better now? Yeah, it sounded like wind or something. Huh, that's weird. I'm not sure what okay. happened. It might have just been okay. an internet connection problem. Are we okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry about that. 
no, th- so that's that that's fascinating how that goes because you know, like you say here, if you're gonna do it, be the best. So so say you know, okay, it, it was a good decision still at the time for them not to buy Netflix. Then if they're gonna realize they have competition, why would they jump into it and not invest everything in making it good? You know, they were just like, we're just gonna have a DVD rental thing online and um we're not going to grow or move as fast as netflix or it's just it's crazy well they the what always and I, this doesn't that it wasn't evident to me at the time because a lot of this you can look back at and, and kind of figure out what happened but of course you were saying you were saying a while ago you know blockbuster talked about it never did anything about it well that's what's so frustrating because everybody knew that at some point Blockbuster would be faced with with delivery of movies via the internet. I mean, everybody knew that was going to happen. Now, nobody knew how big it was going to get because all of the early shots at it had really not been that material. And maybe that's why Blockbuster kind of fell asleep at the wheel because if you remember, uh, you know, cable television had the had the ability to do it uh and even even the dish companies of the day had the ability to do it in an awkward way but none of that had and 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 the studios had had tried it but none of it had really caught hold so when netflix started in in the late 90s the the what was called back then the pay-per-view business was still an insignificant part of the entire home entertainment industry so I think a lot of people, including Blockbuster, had kind of been lulled to sleep into thinking, well, if it ever does anything, it'll just be a niche business. But still, yes. if, you're, if, if you're the leader in the, in, the, in the industry and you know that at some point there's going to be enough bandwidth, everybody knew it was going to come eventually. And that's what held it back up to then. There wasn't enough bandwidth to really do it properly. So... Wouldn't you want to have a, a, a division in your company about, about studying all that and b- to be sure that you understood it better than anybody else? But Blockbuster never did. And in fact, uh, one of the things that came out in, when they finally decided that they were going to, to, to take on Netflix with the Bob Mail business, and this is long before streaming was an issue, uh, they, they put somebody in charge of it that that uh, had no experience in it at all uh, because blockbuster had didn't have any expertise within the company of what an internet business was all about and even though netflix was mailing stuff through the through the mail it was very much an internet-based business that's where you that's that was their that's where they transacted with customers Blockbuster had blockbuster had very little experience in the internet business so the person that they put in charge of it in fact, he, he kind of jokingly says he got the job because he could spell it. I, I know he was just trying to make a joke, but, but that was kind of the, the environment in Blockbuster at the time. They talked a lot about it, but they didn't have anybody in the company that was really studying closely what was going on with Netflix and the way they were developing a customer base through the Internet. They didn't really understand it. And in fact, when Blockbuster finally did decide to get into it, uh, they never really committed to being as good at Netflix as Netflix was, and they never were. They never even 
came close to being as good as Netflix, and that's why it was it proved to be a failure. Right. And another point you hit on here that is, you know, measure what matters. You know, they never clearly defined what mattered. They moved the goalposts to fit what they needed rather than the other way around. That's that really we saw that um, as a store manager The you know, it would seem almost every new um, set of, uh, you know, this is what the end caps or price points and what you're going to be hawking this week is going to look like. It seemed every single thing was just a dramatic shift in a different direction. And when you have young, low-paid employees that are kind of there because they just really enjoy movies and want to talk to people about movies, it shook up their ability to be good salesmen because they weren't selling what they were enthusiastic about. Yeah. We we used to, uh, in the franchise, and we were were not alone in this. The the, the corporate would send out a, uh, what was called a, I believe it was called a map every week. Yes. Yep. Right. There was basically your roadmap as to what you were supposed to be doing in the store. And as through the years, that, that turned out to be more of just a joke than anything else to the franchisees who were trying to run the business based on what we knew about it. And, and it seemed like uh, the map turned out to be, I would term it more, it was the gimmick of the week. Uh, there was there was there was no foundation in what Blockbuster believed the business was, and that was proven week after week after week. It was just one gimmick after another, and uh, many of them were just completely erroneous in what they and what they were trying to do. It just it didn't fit the business, and and it and it tended to get worse over time. So. We never paid any attention to those other than to look at them, laugh at them, throw them in the trash. They were really completely, totally worthless. Other and than just, other than just trying to understand stuff. what Blockbuster was up to, but we never did anything they suggested we do. And and the customers felt it. You know what I mean? Especially customers that had a franchise and a corporate store available to them. We'd always hear all the time about why is this so much easier or better or, you know, this, that's not how they do it over here. And we'd have to kind of just go, yeah, you know, we're trying. <laughs> Sometimes it would yeah. be fighting. You know, we, we had a policy of, up oh, corporate's coming in for a store visit next week, change everything back. Cause we would, yeah. um, you know, we would, you know, if we didn't think secret shops and stuff were coming, we'd put the employee favorite section back out, which they were firmly against at the corporate stores. And we'd, you know, it was, it was just, a riot at how little they understood why people wanted to rent from them over anybody else. Well, they didn't I, get. I, yeah, and I and I've always wondered. You know, there were they the franchisees certainly had that opinion, and we fought them on most everything they did. And I was probably the most vocal of the group, but it wasn't just me. It was virtually all the franchisees. We were we were in constant conflict with what where they thought the business should be going. And in the research, I find out that there's a whole lot of people like you and other people that were in the corporation that felt the same way. But, but the top management in uh, Blockbuster had just sealed themselves off away from any, anybody outside of a very small group of people. And uh, the best example I can give of it, and I tell this and, I, and I, it shocks people, 
but when uh, when John Antiaco joined the company in 1997, he was a very, very, uh, number one, the company was in deep trouble at the time in 97. And he made some, I think, some really smart moves and got it turned around. He was... He was very uh, engaged with the franchisees. He was very engaged with the corporation. He was everywhere, uh, asking questions, listening. We all, we, he, he re-energized the company. But, but this is not an exaggeration to say that after he had been there for about two years, the franchisees never saw him again. Wow. The only time we would see him would be at, at, at functions, uh, at social functions to receive awards or something. He never attended another franchise business uh, meeting for the entire life of his tenure at Blockbuster. And, you know, we would question that. And we were always told that he was busy doing other things. And I, you know, I don't, you know, I don't pretend to to want to speculate on what he was doing. But I think anytime you have a CEO that's running a company and the franchisees at, at one point represented almost 1,500 stores. Uh, and, and he didn't want to have any dialogue with us whatsoever about what the business was about. Now, he might say differently because he wrote us memos and things, but the, but the dialogue was always one way. It was never two way. That was always left to the people that worked for him. Uh, but we never, we didn't have any interaction with the CEO of, of Blockbuster for over five years. And I, you know, take that for what it's worth, but it's just the truth. And it, and it's, uh, it was always very disturbing to us that we didn't have access to the person that was ultimately making the decisions. Wow. That, that is a huge, <laughs> I mean, and, the, and, as- and, 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 and Chris, the more I talked to corporate people in the research, the more I heard of that's the way it was in corporate as well, is, wow. that, is that John had a very small group of people that had influence on him and nobody else did. And certainly the franchisees were not a part of that influence group. Wow. So, man. <laughs> I, I like I said, I just can't wait to to read this entire thing because these it, it is it's awesome to have lived through something that just seemed so unflappable. Like it just never seemed when I was working there that that would ever be a place that wouldn't be around, um, or at least a business that wouldn't be there. Right? But see, you, know? you, you where the the level you were at, and, and this was true of so much of corporate, y'all didn't really see the 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 the, the financials. Uh, right. You you couldn't see what was really going on. And, and, and we couldn't see it all as franchisees, but we could see a lot more of it than y'all could because they would share all kinds of data with us about stores and and what customer traffic was and 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 the number of rentals and the average price and all that stuff. So we had we had a lot of insight into what was going on. And I can tell you that from 2000 on, everything we looked at was negative. Everything. Now wow. it was being it was being covered up at times by price increases, by cost of pro- lower cost of product when DVD came along. But I was the, actual, the actual traffic into the stores and the number of movies they were renting was in constant decline, and and it just and so every anybody that paid attention to it knew that they were headed for disaster. 
if they didn't turn those trends around because it, they were all just being covered up with other things. So, uh, I mean, it was, it was obvious to anybody like me that, that looked at things in that level of detail, but they never would acknowledge it. Yeah. There, and, 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 and of course the biggest thing that I point out of the book is when the business switched from VHS to DVD. Right. Uh, that's exactly what uh, I was trying to get to. You, you, you read my transition perfect there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I could never understand how if, if you're in a business and all of a sudden your largest cost is cut by 60%, which is your product, how could you not benefit from that? Right. And, 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 and the thing is, I understand that there was some concern at the time that, uh, that, that because DVD was going to be priced direct to consumer, the, win the, the, the rental window literally went away. Okay, so we, we are faced with the threat of whether or not Walmart is going to put us out of business by selling mm -hmm. movies instead of renting them. So that was the, that was the, that was the threat. Well, I never thought that was going to happen, but I didn't know that. But as, but as a few years into it, it, it became very obvious that as many movies as Walmart and everybody else was going to sell, and you can go back and look at the statistics, the rental business stayed relatively stable through those years. So it became very, very obvious that even though more people were buying movies, just as many were still renting them. But yet Blockbuster managed to over the course of five or six years, uh, they, they managed to be spending as much for rental product for $17 movies as they were for VHS that were $60 movies. So how do you do that? Yeah. You know, I, and, that's, and, and when people ask, you know, how we survived for so long, there's a lot of reasons, but that was the biggest one, is that the cost of product dropped so fast and so dramatically that we were able to number number one cut our cost, but number two we created a much much better customer experience. We had a lot more product. Much of it was priced for less than it was in VHS days, and uh, so we took advantage of the low cost where Blockbuster had less product and higher prices. So what do you think happened? Yeah, you know, if you look at Blockbuster's entire price structure of VHS days and the D and DVD days, it got much higher with DVD when the pro cost of product was much less. And on top of that, they had less of it, particularly in catalog, which is what Netflix was renting. Netflix built their entire business off of, off of sending 80, 90% of their subscribers old movies. Blockbuster didn't have most of those old movies. So uh, they were being beaten by a company that they didn't understand because they didn't know how to rent that stuff. Well, right. And, that, and the, the thing is, with an older movie, people that are looking for it are usually looking for it, you know, so they don't need a whole store to walk through to get it. But what Blockbuster lost by not having that old product available that Netflix gained over them was that you go into a Blockbuster and you might grab that old movie because you, they didn't have what you came in looking for so then you go and do a deep dive and rediscover something but netflix had it right at your finger trips you said i want blazing saddles we've got this you want dracula we've got this you want you know romancing the stone we've got this and blockbuster was just inundating them with product that you know 
people you know wanted to come in and browse that's what they wanted to come in for they liked the idea of yeah i'm gonna get this new transformers movie but let me go take a walk through the horror section and the right. minute that that looked like they didn't have as much you immediately go up oh, enough times with them not having the movie i'm looking for i'm just going to assume they don't have it and i'm going to go to netflix yeah and here's and here's the worst part they were all those dvds there were older movies and the catalog is what we called it or the bsi back in those days mm -hmm. It was, it, it was, Blockbuster was renting it for $4. You could go, you could go to Walmart and buy it for four or $5. All, yep. that, all, all, all that old stuff. So that, that was another part of the equation that I never understood. We rented all of that stuff for a dollar for five days. Yep. And, and we, and we rented at least five times more of it than Blockbuster did. So even, least, e yeah, at least in some stores, it was much, much more than that. I, 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 right up the street. What's that? For the franchises. For the BSI, people, if people were like, you didn't have it, or, or, you know, why is it so much? We'd go, just go to Beverly. You can get it for a buck. That's sad, isn't it? Yeah. But when I, when I would bring that issue up, and I'll never forget, I was talking to an executive VP about it. And I asked him, you know, I, I was explaining to him how much success we were having from renting older DVDs. And the thing is, they weren't expensive. You could buy them. Most of the average cost for this old stuff wholesale was like eight bucks. It wasn't, yeah. ex it wasn't expensive. So you, you could afford to get very, very aggressive building that catalog inventory. And we, what we found is the more aggressive we got, the more we rented. So I was trying to explain this to a, to a corporate executive and he was totally convinced that all we were doing was trading people down that, that people, but people really came into the store to rent new releases. And that's the only thing they were interested in. And the only reason they would go to catalog is if you didn't have new release, they wanted, no, he didn't, no. un, they didn't understand that there was, a, this was a total experience we were trying to create that. Yeah, we understand that new releases are important. And we rented more of them, too, than Blockbuster did. But we also rented a whole lot of catalog, most of which they didn't even stock. So, you know, and, and I could never get them engaged in a conversation about that. In fact, it kind of became a joke. Oh, yeah, Payne's the one that rents all the old stuff. Okay. <laughs> we rent all those. So we also rent more new stuff than you do. And, and the numbers proved it. But uh, it... it it just, it was because they were so singularly focused on new releases, you couldn't get them broken out in thinking about it. And, and of course, at the time, I didn't really recognize uh, what Netflix was doing because they were in their early days. And it was not till a couple of years later that they started being pretty open about the fact that they were renting so many older movies and and very few new ones and and uh you know we learned from that and 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 realized we could do the same thing uh, and and even though because we were a video store we never approached the like in, in netflix about only about 20 percent of what they rented was new releases 80 percent was old movies in our yep. stores in our store and in a blockbuster corporate store it was about 90-10. About 90% were new releases. About 10% were old movies. In one of our stores, it was about 50-50. Yeah. 
we were renting about as many, in fact, some stores were renting more catalog than we were new releases. Uh, and, and instead of trying to force the customer to do what we wanted them to do, we just gave them what they wanted. Yeah. And the, and the, and the thing is, the, the, the catalog was so profitable. And even though we were continuing to invest in it, the gross margin on catalog was always about 90%. Well, that was a whole lot more than new releases. So you could, you could rent it for less. And, and the main thing is, is it, it kept people coming to the stores. If, yeah. if, they, if, if, they, got, if, they, if they weren't interested in, a new, in, a new, in the new release of the week, they still had a reason to come. And that's what, I, in fact, I remember, uh, I remember taking uh, a Blockbuster VP to Alaska one time. I finally got him up there to look in our stores. And, and, we, and we walked into the store, and, and the moment he walked in, he said, this is what a Blockbuster store is supposed to be like. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, there's customers all over the store, not just on the new release wall. I said, well, yeah, yep. that's, that's the obvious part, right? And but but he was not in a decision making role. So even though he understood what we were doing, he never had any influence on what Blockbuster did. So, you know, it you know, there was nothing he could do about it. A thing that I had always thought back when I was there, and I don't know if they ever would have been able to replicate something like this, but before the streaming thing took prominence. The thing that Netflix had that I think the average consumer really loved was the ability to set up a queue. It was the ability to say, when I return this movie, it's going to give me what I want next. Or if they don't have that, it's going to send me something else that I told them I wanted. And it's also going to inform me when the thing I was looking for came out, which means I don't have to walk into a door and bother the poor young CSR taking all the tapes out of the Dropbox and get the same response that everyone was getting that we don't have it. We don't have it. We don't have it. Right. It was this automatic. I get to set up what I like and it knows what I like, but there's still a physical transaction happening that the streaming can't even replicate because streaming is just, Oh, I got five minutes into this and I don't like it. And since I have nothing invested in it because I didn't transact in this movie, I'm never going to give that movie a chance and I'm just going to move on to something else. But at a blockbuster, you might grab the, well, oh, crap, I didn't know they made a seventh Nightmare on Elm Street. Let me grab that. You know what I mean? And then you have to commit to it even if it's not good. You know, yeah, and it's, and, it's, and, it's, and it's, by the way, it's $4. Yeah. Plus and, late uh, fee. Plus, plus late fees. Oh, and then plus the. Uh, which is the a whole VHS, other store. Which is a whole other store. stocking charge, which we also used to warn people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that DVD, they're only going to charge you what it costs the company, the money of it till you return it. But on that VHS yeah. tape, you didn't charge 120 bucks. Good luck. <laughs> it's crazy, wasn't it? But you oh. know, what you, what you talked about Netflix. Yeah. I mean, when, when, you know, the, the, the queue had its benefits. It also had its problems because, because we knew that, that Netflix had throttling formulas and, and that, and that, you know, you may not get, the movie you really wanted. Uh, and, uh, and it, and it wasn't, it wasn't going to come today. It was going to come tomorrow or the next day. So yeah, it was a, it was a great, obviously it was a, it was a great business model and it, and it was very successful, but it wasn't perfect. Uh, like we talked a while ago, you, you, you probably, 
probably weren't going to get a new release for at least several weeks after it came out. If you were, yes. if you really, if you really wanted a new release, you needed to go to a store. And because the price of DVDs was so low, we, we, our goal was always to be 100% in stock on new releases by the second week. It was not realistic economically to do it the first week, but you could do it the second week and still keep your, your, your business model intact. That was our commitment. There was no way that Netflix could do that. So we knew we had them beat on that. Number two, we knew they had access to the entire, the, I mean, their warehouses were filled with every DVD was, that was ever made. We couldn't do that in every store. But what we did is, is anytime a customer asked us for a movie that we did not have, we bought it. Every yep. store had the right to do that. They didn't have to ask permission. We, we actually marketed the program. It was called We've Got It or We'll Get It. As those movies would come in, they would, they would go in a special, special section where everybody, all the customers could see what had been requested. Those, yes, were huge, those, were huge, those were huge sections where people would start to gravitate to because they go, oh, well, this is what's new. This is what's new. They'd go there. Yeah, and, this is, I've walked through this library 28 times, but this is the stuff that I wouldn't have seen. Yes, yeah, and, and, and a fellow customer requested it. Uh, so somebody else wanted to see it. Maybe I want to see it. So uh, that was just one of many ways we tried to help customers go to things that they wanted, that, that we thought they'd want to see. Well, now Netflix had their own ways of doing that on a website. That, fine, it that, that had some advantages. But in our view, walking into a Blockbuster store that was fully stocked and had, and had movies merchandised in a way that I can go around and have fun looking for stuff, that was something that Netflix could never duplicate. So the, yep. only, the, so the only question was, in our mind, okay, we're doing the best we can. We understand that the, we've got some weaknesses, but we also have some strengths. So we're going to do the best we can. We're going to see what happens. Well, we saw what happened. Over the course of those seven years, our customer count never went down. In fact, most of those years it went up. Yes, there were some people that preferred movies through the mail. And, I, and in our markets, it probably expanded the market, but it didn't hurt our business. Our sales never went down during that time frame. Our sales never declined until the, until the, re, until the Great Recession hit in 2008. They never declined. They were flat to up every year. All those years of Blockbuster was in decline. So in our view, and, and of course, we were in Alaska and Texas, and, and, and even in Alaska where people think, well, maybe, maybe Netflix didn't have overnight delivery. No, they did. Uh, they, had a distribution center. they had a distribution center in Anchorage. And, and they, could, they could overnight deliver to most of, of, of the stores that they were competing with this on. So uh, we, you know, Netflix in Alaska was just as, as dominant there as they were anywhere. Uh, and in fact, if you think about, well, do I want to drive to a store on a cold, dark, icy night in January or would I rather get it in the mail? Well, to us, that was another huge disadvantage we had. Netflix is going to send it to you. You got to get, you got to get out in your car and come to us and slide around on the slick roads and endure 30, 40 degrees below zero. But we're shaking on our boots at all this uh, because we certainly can't match, match that. So we do the best we can. And what happens? We go, grow the business every year where Blockbuster is going down. 
so yeah, Netflix, I'm sure we never knew how many subscribers they had in Alaska. Obviously that information was not available to us, but we knew that whatever they had, uh, they weren't hurting us. And maybe they were taking a few customers, but in the process of improving our stores to try to match Netflix, we actually attracted more. So uh, that's what happened. Wow. And that's, so in Alaska, was it all franchise, even at the yeah, height of the company? Yeah, yeah we, had, we had the entire state. Of course, by the entire state, there's only like 600,000 people in the entire state. So right. it's not that many. And, and, and two-thirds of them uh, live in the Anchorage area. And how so many we, stores is that? At its height, we we had we had we had seventeen stores in Alaska at its peak. Wow! Yeah. And when in two thousand eighteen, how many was it down to? Well, just was the two, the, just the two, yeah. just the two that closed the, in August of two thousand eighteen. There were two stores wow. that were closed. That just still blows my mind. That like you know, I love hearing that you had solutions to those questions I always had. How could a store make itself marketable because that you have this quote here um which i think is an awesome full circle quote to the original um one about vcrs from quentin tarantino of all people who is definitely a person that gets a little bit you know crazy about his intellectual property um he called the video store a culture thing that has been lost nothing worthwhile has taken its place to tell you the truth i don't know why it was lost and then you beg the question Managed differently, could Blockbuster still have been here? And you showed that at least after the initial decline, it was able to go on healthily for many years. Well, we we profitably operated until 2018, and 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 keep in mind that we were for heck the last 15 years that we were open, we were constantly battling bad blog bad Blockbuster press. Uh, and as I, as I say in the book, you know, we couldn't even have a sale without people thinking we were, it was a going out of business sale. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, it was a, it was a constant battle. So there's no way to know how long we would have lasted had we not had w- without all the bad blockbuster press, which got really bad, you know, when they filed bankruptcy, but it was, there was bad even before that. Oh so, yeah. So, so. There's no way for, for, for us to know how long we would have lasted beyond 18, but I can almost guarantee we'd still have a handful of stores open today. Uh, I guarantee if, that. If it, and, and yeah, it would be a much smaller business, but this was just two, three years ago. And we, were st- we still had, uh, in those two stores in Anchorage, we still had four or 5,000 customers through them every week. Uh, so, so there was still, there still was a business there. It's just that we understood that it was declining and I just wonder, would it have really been declining like that? Had we not been fighting? I mean, Blockbuster became just synonymous with failure. Uh, so it was, it was, it was, it was hard. It was hard to fight that. Uh, and I, and we never had our heads in the sand. We understood what was going on that net, you know, by, by then, the Netflix streaming business was was really hitting its stride, and we understood that yeah, this is changing the world. Uh, but uh, and now you can debate all day whether Blockbuster should have been a part of that, and I think they should have been, but they weren't. So we were we were you know we were battling with stores. That's all we had. 
Right. And, and uh, you know, the stores could be made interesting enough to keep people from converting to Netflix. Eventually, we'd have probably lost out, but we could have we could have kept we could have kept going a whole lot longer had we not been battling uh, all the bad press of Blockbuster. I don't think there's yeah. any question about that. And and you know, it stuck with it even after 2018, right? Every little positive thing, and again, you know, it's become such a niche, memeable thing that all the positive stuff coming up about the Oregon store is, you know, people latch on and, you know, Blockbuster can, his Twitter account can switch on for a day and get 15 million shares on Reddit, you know, or whatever. But yeah. still, to that, every positive thing, the world is already set up to turn it into a negative, right? Um, they do that Airbnb thing, which is something they had in motion before the pandemic, you know? And all yeah. the news articles come out, Blockbuster closing and converting to an Airbnb sign of last thing. And it's like, no, they're doing fine over there. They're, I mean, they're being hurt by the pandemic, but this was a nice thing they did for fun. They're still a store. Like, yeah. you have it all wrong. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, you know, the, as I say in the book, you know, the history gets written by the victors. Well, Netflix, Netflix is writing history about what has happened to home entertainment. And they're still dominant and probably will be for the rest of my lifetime. Yeah. Uh, got, but, but, but what had, what would have happened? You know, these big decisions that get made change the course of business and industries. What would have happened had Blockbuster been a partner with Reed Hastings and, and Reed Hastings be running the, mail and eventually the streaming part of the business and blockbuster be focused on this on the store business and somehow in there they figure out a way to blend the two together somehow in a in a in a way that that, that works i mean there's no a way for any of us, of us to know what that might have looked like but but smart creative people that are in touch with customers kind of find ways to make things like that work on some level and I, mean, I and I, I really think that uh, there's there would have been some way for a few stores to stay open for the people that enjoyed that, that experience, uh, but but you know it was not to be because Blockbuster didn't have the financial stability to ever have a chance to make that happen. Right, and the view of the public is that they had it, and that's that's what I love about this story, is that they you know they were hurting for a lot longer than anybody knew. Oh and, yeah. And these decisions, like to me and you, it's like you, you should have bought a company for $50 million. And it's like they didn't see it that way. Um, it, it always amazes me, too, when you talk about that. You know, you look at companies like Amazon that were entirely digital based and now have brick and mortar entities. You know, they have mm -hmm. places to do pop offs and returns. They have brick and mortar stores where you can buy things that they sell. It's like the world is folding over on itself. And had they teamed up and survived, maybe we would have seen a, you know, a resurgence. You know, maybe that blip with a blockbuster in it at the beginning of Captain Marvel could have come with an ad campaign of, and by the way, we opened a store in New York, Chicago, and L.A., you know, and we're going to have three blockbusters in the U.S. again just to celebrate this and see how it goes. Yeah, and, and, you know, what, and, and what would happen right now if you went out with the message? of okay in order to get have access to all the movies in this blockbuster store you've got to subscribe to six different streaming businesses 
right? Which is which is which is kind of the way it is now. If you if you want yeah. access to everything, uh, you got to do Netflix and Disney and everything else. You you know that's that's the only way you have access to all of it. Now, if if there's if there's a blockbuster store there that can actually, you know, of course the studios have some control over that. Netflix isn't going to necessarily sell you the DVD and all that stuff because that's not their business anymore. But but if Blockbuster had had the had the financial clout to say, okay, we're gonna, you know, at some point after you debut that on Netflix, let's put that out in DVD and put it in the stores and continue that experience. And you can make money, we can make money. I you know I don't yep. know what I don't know what that would have looked like. But 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 what we know is is it it never had an opportunity to do it. And, that, now, and to me, that's the, that's the sad part of it because it never, we never got to try. Right. Now, having been someone that had a chance to see and attempt to um, point this in a different direction, even under the umbrella of that name, even though you got to do what you wanted, looking at something like Netflix and all these streaming platforms now, one of my biggest complaints about them, that piece that they're missing, is is the browsing piece it's the it's the piece of seeing cover box art and walking around and getting excited and, and hell you know maybe like places like bank of america that have that chat bot you know that you can talk to that goes to a real person in a call center maybe we employ people like that that work for netflix is like this is your video game geek and your movie geek and they're gonna you know help you out figuring out a rental is there any way do you think the public wants that 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 process and more experience i think they do and i really don't know why anyone hasn't capitalized on trying to figure out how to integrate that you just you just faded on me chris again oh, sorry about that am i still here my back just bear just barely weird okay one second okay how about now no Huh. You, you just kind of went into this kind of hollow. I can hardly, I can right. hardly hear you. A minute. There you are. You're back. I'm back. We're good. Yeah. I don't know what happened. How long was that? What was I saying at the time? Oh uh, well, I could hear you. It just went. I, I, it just sounded like you were back in the hole someplace, and and now you're now you're back. So oh. the so the so the question was. Uh, this this experience of going into a store and browsing would that it, would that be valuable today? Yeah, is that was that it? Um, yeah, and do you think there's a way to merge that into a fully online experience, or does it require the physical brick and mortar experience? Uh, you know, it's it's all guesswork because you know, obviously, I don't know. Uh, uh, I think I think it would be difficult, uh, only because people's behavior has already changed, and I don't yeah. know I don't know how you I don't know how you go back. I think had it been done right all those years, you could have kept a lot more people engaged in that experience because, in many ways, it's better. And I understand that the you know the whole idea of you know you hear people talk like yeah it was so stupid to drive to a store. And then drive home, and then have to drive back. Uh, well, there was there were ways around that. You know, we could have we could have we could you come to the store, 
you you pick a movie, you put it in an envelope, and mail it back. You know, uh, it there was there was so you don't have to take the other trip. There was a lot of ways to 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 work around some of those issues, and just like we've said, you know, the the online experience is certainly not perfect. It gets very frustrating at times. Uh, well, the store experience was not perfect. Uh, there were there were negatives about it as well, but there were also a lot of good things about it. And, and, uh, but, but the store had to be a complete experience and it had to be merchandised in an exciting way. And it had to have massive inventory. The, the, it was in 2006 that Chris Anderson came out with this book. And of course, by then Netflix had already, you know, they had already done a lot of damage to Blockbuster. And in many, in many respects, we didn't really understand why, because we didn't know a whole lot about how Netflix was running the business. And uh, Reed Hastings was, was quoted in the book multiple times talking about how they had built the business. It was primarily on the backs of older movies. And the whole point of the book was how the internet was expanding access to things and that, and that, the, and that the typical consumer was much less of a hit-driven consumer versus a niche-driven consumer which was playing right into Netflix's hands because they had everything. And, uh, and so what we did in our stores is uh, we came up with a program in our stores where, you know, we bought, we, we literally bought anything a customer asked for. And, and we didn't find it to be that expensive. It added maybe one or two, two percentage points to our cost of goods. It wasn't that big of a deal, but what it produced is, is that we had, everything literally everything a customer asked for so what happened is the, the 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 store inventories became kind of customized to each store's customer base that every every movie a customer had asked for we had it well we didn't have everything netflix had but we had everything our customers in that particular store wanted so we didn't yep. consider we didn't consider ourselves to be at a disadvantage to netflix uh, and, and in, so in some of our smaller stores, we may have an inventory of 10, 15,000 catalog titles, which was, or, or movies, which is small for us, but twice the size of a typical blockbuster. But we had stores in Alaska that were high volume stores that had over 30,000 DVDs in their catalog section and were renting and were renting them over 10,000 times a week. Well, it, it just it just demonstrated that the massive demand that, that that existed for all these older niche movies, some of which were great and some of which, as you know, were just pure crap. But oh. but people didn't care, particularly when it was a dollar. They didn't care. They would try it. So we had all these movies rent, that rented for a dollar and uh, and we called it Alaska's video collection or El Paso's video collection. And I've often wondered what would it, what would Blockbuster have looked like had they pursued a similar strategy and been out there screaming to America, America's video collection. Oh, my. Uh, I mean, what would it, what would it have looked like? I mean, what, what would that have done to Netflix had they been out there screaming to America that we have every movie you have ever asked for in every Blockbuster store and we'll rent it to you for a dollar. So instead of paying $20 to subscribe to Netflix, you can get everything you want here and you're probably going to spend less. 
and it, oh. and it, and and it, and it might be a whole lot more fun because you get to come in and 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 immediately look at a couple of thousand cover boxes instead of scrolling through a screen. Uh, you right. know, I I I know that we had inherent disadvantages, but we also had we ha- also had a lot of things on our side. Uh, well, and it, and you wouldn't even have had to had two trips to the store. We could give you an envelope when you left and put it in the mail if you want. Well, and think about. Think about it, and this just popped into my head when you were talking. Think about it in terms of a pandemic situation like we had here, right? Where every business had to step up and say, how do we make our product more easily available to someone who's afraid of going out? And you'd think Netflix with a DVD delivery or a streaming would have an advantage there. But if you could look at the inventory of your local blockbuster online and tell Uber to deliver you that movie, which either they don't have streaming at all, or you'd have to pay for another $8 service to get it, or rent it on Comcast. But if you just wait for it for an hour and the same person that's bringing you your pizza will bring you your movie, it's gold. Yeah, and of course, fortunately, we never had to face that challenge. It would have been a big one. Uh, but but uh, yeah, if you're, if you're a healthy, successful business, sometimes you can adapt to challenges like that. Wow. But, but my, my point was that, you know, way before the pandemic, uh, blockbuster stores could have had everything. Uh, yeah. and, the, and, the, and the thing is, I've talked to studio executives about this. And, you know, Blockbuster was primarily a, a customer of new releases. Well, that's, that's the, the very movies that, that the studios would prefer to sell at Walmart instead of sell to Blockbuster to rent. And yep. so... But they would have been exceptionally excited had Blockbuster said, well, we want to buy, uh, I don't know, 50,000 copies of X movie that you haven't sold 5,000 of in the last decade because we know that we can build a business in that in the stores. Well, the studios would have all of a sudden been on Blockbuster's side instead of constantly fighting against them. And because Blockbuster could have bought literally millions of DVDs of older movies. Uh, and the thing is, I, and I've asked some, some of the studio executives about this, would they have had a problem with this? Because, they, yeah, they were, they were selling them in Walmart, but they didn't consider that to be a replacement uh, transaction. They always considered uh, the sale of a new release, which was precious to them because they were making about 15 bucks every time they sold a movie in Walmart. Where yep. that same movie that was renting in Blockbuster, their cut of it was going to be a buck fifty or so. So they would much rather sell it in Walmart. But when it came down to the lower priced movies that were the older movies, they would have just sold as soon sold a few million of them to Blockbuster as sell them to block to Walmart to uh, to sell. So you know, it was just it was a part of the business that never we never found out how big it could have been. All I know is how big it got in our stores. And we had, and we had stores that were renting every week over 10,000 catalog movies. Blockbuster's total rental in a store was two or 3,000. Yeah. So that included, and that, most of that was new releases. Yeah. So, the, 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 you know, when I say we were running a, a completely different business than they were, we were. It was completely different. 
And you know what's funny is the average consumer um, didn't know the difference. They just saw the blockbuster name, and you said that's where the bad press comes from, right? If you've got if you've got nothing but these franchise stores, you build your own little niche with your customers. Right. You have a got a franchise over here and a corporate over here. People get bad blood about them about blockbuster, and you know might not go in. But having known that. You know, who knows how long all of them, all the franchises could have stuck around, right? It's yeah, crazy. and of course, and of course, we we spent a lot of money on our own creative and our own advertising, trying to to create an image of our stores that was completely opposite of what Blockbuster was doing, and and we were fortunate in that our markets were were we were we didn't share it with corporate market with, with corporate stores. In fact. All the stores in Alaska we owned, all the stores in El Paso we owned, all the stores in the Rio Grande Valley we owned. So we could some degree create our own image in those markets because Blockbuster corporate stores were not there. The problem was is a lot of their advertising was national, so it would be hitting our markets. So we were, con we were constantly having to try to retrain customers as to what our Blockbuster was versus what the, they thought a blockbuster was so what would have happened had we all been doing the same thing you know it who knows it, it we there may be a couple of thousand stores open today I don't, I don't know right i mean like i said you know even though the structure was different family video had 500 a year and a half ago right yeah and they just they just closed them all so that that tells us that tells us something you know that uh that even that even if you were doing it a lot of things more right than wrong. The business is, you know, seriously challenged. <laughs> yeah, and again, it's all in that. Always having that view of of the future, how to rebrand. If, if Blockbuster had a strong internet presence, whether it was through a um, partnership with Netflix back in the day, or its own realization that someday the brick and mortar, you know, it's hard to look at. 9,000 stores and not think you're still going to be there only 10 years later, right? Well, you know, th this is a good time to make the point that, you know, people know Netflix as the streaming company today. Yeah. Well, what they did is that they used their by mail business to learn the business and to transition to the streaming business. There was, and, and of course, they're still in the by mail business, but it's a small piece of, of the company now. But they use that expertise to transition to streaming. Well, there's no reason Blockbuster could not have done the same thing. In fact, Netflix, in terms of DVDs renting, rental, was never even close to the size of Blockbuster. Blockbuster, even, even when they filed bankruptcy, was still renting a whole lot more DVDs than Blockbuster was mailing through the mail, like four or five times more. So they were always a much bigger company in terms of, of DVD rentals. Yet they didn't take the expertise that they, they supposedly had learned from that and understand what was going to come next. That was Reed Hastings and Netflix that did that. And, yep. and, I, and I, you know, there, to me, there was just no, there's no reasonable explanation for why Blockbuster at least didn't give it a, a stronger shot. Now they claim they did because they, they eventually went into buy mail 
And of course, there's a whole chapter in the book explaining what a fiasco that turned out to be. And and they oh. would and they and and they would they would say completely differently because they were they were growing faster than Netflix was at one time. But they were only doing it was because they were giving movies away. Um, and and they were destroying the stores in the process. And you were in a store, so you know a lot about what that was what was what that was doing to you. It was terrible. It yeah. Was ter- oh. In oh. fact, I would I would I would hazard to guess, and you tell me if I'm wrong, that that by the time you left in 2008, uh, the availability of new releases in your store was probably the worst it had ever been. Ever been, and like you'd be like, this was a huge movie, and we'd have yeah. maybe two thirds of what we used to have. There you go. There's the. And, and you ask anybody that was there on the ground watching it at the time, and that's what it was. Yet Blockbuster, of the management of those days, John Antiaco, Shane Evangelist, everybody else that was there, they would tell you that they had Netflix on the run. <laughs> and, and, and maybe they did have Netflix on the run, but they were killing the stores in the process. And that was never an option. You, you, could not, you could not have a, a blockbuster store that was worse in 2008 than it was in 2000. That was, that was a recipe for disaster. It was never going to work. Ugh. But wow. because they all left in 2007 before bankruptcy, it's easy for them to blame it on their successors. But I think anybody, and, and people can disagree with me, but anybody that really looks at the, at the details of what happened, I don't think they can come to that conclusion. Wow. Well, Alan, for the uh, semblance of time, sounds like you and I could talk forever, and I, I have an absolute blast speaking with you about this book. I wanted to give you the... The microphone to yourself to either hit on a point we may have missed or just to say anything you want to say and, and hawk your books so people know where to get it. Well, the, the, uh, I, I think the most important thing to remember with all of this is, I, and I think it's, is the, is true of most stories like this. You know, there's a lot of sides to it and, uh, people can read it and, uh, you know, like they're, free to disagree. What I hope people will do, if you're really interested in what happened to Blockbuster, uh, this is clearly the most comprehensive book about it that's ever been written. And it probably is the most comprehensive book that will ever be written about Blockbuster because there was such a, a, a turnover of management in Blockbuster over, those, over the 25-year history that I don't know anybody else that was there long enough to even tell it. So, and I don't know of anybody that would have an interest in telling it because it was a story of failure. So why would you go back and, and want to write a story of failure? So, uh, so I guess the point is, if you really want to know what happened to Blockbuster, this is a good place to, to find out. And what I would encourage everybody to do, if you're interested in it, read the whole thing. Because if you go and read a chapter or two, you're not going to be able to put it into context. And, and, and the, the, I know when I, was, when I was working on this so hard with, and with the help of some other franchisees trying to understand how to tell the story, it was very important to understand the first eight years 
and how unbelievably successful Blockbuster was and how even for, for great companies, it's very difficult not to get very complacent and very arrogant in some ways and think that you've got it all figured out. Uh, I, the moment you think that, <laughs> you're in trouble because somebody else will figure out a way to do it better. And that culture that was established in Blockbuster in those early years, unfortunately, I don't think ever went away. Even though where there were another, there were several different CEOs, different management teams after that, but it never changed. And that was that was that was the root of Blockbuster's demise. Uh, yes, any company that's in an industry that's changing, and what industry is not changing, it's difficult to make the transition to the next thing. Uh, and even if Blockbuster had done everything perfectly, it would have been difficult. But the, my, the point of the book is, is that if, you've got to get, if you're going to give yourself a chance to make that transition and to, and to compete with the Reed Hastings of the world, you better, you better be serious about understanding your business as in-depth as you can and, and also understanding your competition as in-depth as you can. Because if you don't, this is what will happen, and it will happen to I don't care who you are. It's just a matter of when. And you can look around and see the companies in that situation every year. The companies that were the biggest companies 20 years ago, they're not anymore. Uh, and, 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 and there's very few companies that sustain that year after year after year. It doesn't matter how big they are. Blockbuster never really gave themselves an opportunity to. So I, you know, the, 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 the book is, 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 is uh, it's very in-depth, but it's not, I don't think it's so in-depth that uh, it's not a fun read. Uh, I tried to leave a lot of the detail out of it and get just enough in there so people that maybe are not familiar with the industry could understand it, but also find, have fun reading it and understanding how a company, the size of Blockbuster, could make all the colossal mistakes that they did. Uh, and it's, you know, there's, the, the lessons can be applied to any business, really. Yeah. I, I take what I learned as an in-the-trenches um, employee manager, store manager at that store and take it to every job I've gotten since. I, yeah. I, don't, think there's, I don't think there's many jobs in retail or in corporate or in anywhere that was as hands-on because since you're hawking a very singular product um for the most part it's a very easy job to be able to do as an employee but it's a very niche and very complex job to become great at and when 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 those well-oiled machines of the store in like 2002 2003 were just moving there's nothing like the feeling of a good team you know, there's like an enthusiasm that even the customers have, like when you're getting people out the store fast and getting people what they want, that that's the kind of thing I try to um, impress upon employees that work for me today, you know, is the, how, how you create a, a camaraderie like that. Yeah, it was, it was fun. And it was the, uh, it was the place to be. And uh, on, on a Friday or a Saturday night, it was the place to be. And, and I know that that things have changed, but for a long, long time, 
it was just a natural thing to do. And, 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 and that's why that experience had to get better and better because there were competition. The competition was looming. And instead of it getting better and better at a typical blockbuster store, and you saw this, uh, it got worse. Uh, and I, I think, you know, a lot of people that listen to this will be former blockbuster employees. I think, and I've heard it, uh, Dave Carrera, who you mentioned before, he's read the book. And he said it helped him really understand more of what was really going on. And it explained some of their, some of his frustrations over the years that, you know, he didn't, he didn't see the whole story. And that was a unique thing about being a franchisee, even though we were not in the corporate boardroom and understanding all of the background of what went into Blockbuster's decisions. The fact is we were running the same stores they were. So when they would make changes, they would have to explain to us what they were doing and why because they wanted us to to do it too. So we had a lot of, you know, really good discussions with Blockbuster over years about what they were doing and 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 a whole lot of that's in the book. Uh, Love it. You know, the 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 you know, we just we didn't agree on very much, but for the life of, uh, of the company, you know, we never had a contentious relationship with Blockbuster management. It was frustrating, but, but uh, all the people I talk about in the book, uh, you know, Nigel Shepard and, uh, I mean, Nigel Travis and, and Nick Shepard and, and, all, and all the others, uh, the, the, uh, Jim Keyes, uh, who was the last CEO before they filed bankruptcy, you know, we didn't agree on everything, but we always we we were always open to talk. And I remember uh, when I ran into Nick at the at the uh, at the premiere of Netflix versus the World. You know, it was good to see him again. And we we all we agreed that it was that it was never personal. We didn't agree on hardly anything, but it was never personal. Uh, so so as people read the book, this is, this is not a, this is not a, a personal attack on anybody. It's just, it's just, it's just a different take on, 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 on the business and you can agree with it or disagree with it. Uh, the only person that, and I pointed out in the book and the, in the, in the conclusion, the only person that I wanted to talk to that wouldn't talk was John Antiaco. Yeah, of course. And of course, he would have been the most important because he was the CEO during all this time that primarily we've been talking about from 1997 to 2007. Uh, Not only has he not talked to me, he hadn't talked to hardly anybody about any level of detail. Uh, You know, he 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 made an appearance on the Netflix versus the world uh, documentary. But that but that entire story the way they told it was favorable to his perspective and i'm sure that's the reason he was there yep. uh when i he did he did talk to me when i asked him to do an interview for the book but when i sent him a list of the questions that i wanted to ask him he declined and yeah. uh and that's and and i hate to say it but that's pretty typical of the way he ran the business for the last seven or eight years he was very distant, uh, and as I say in the book, all his communication with franchisees, for the most part, was f- from a safe distance and one way. He never yeah. put himself in a situation where he, we were going to have an in-depth discussion about what was going on in the business. He, he avoided that completely. 
And, and, and ever since he left in 2007, I think that's what he's continued to do. He's, he's given some interviews to people, but he's never really put himself in a situation where we'd have to answer in-depth questions about what he did. I was hoping I would get that chance because, there, you know, there may be something about it I don't understand. I'd like to know. So since he wouldn't answer the questions, I had to tell it from the information that I had. And I did it, you know, as accurately as I could. Here's hoping he reads the book, you know. And may, and I'm guessing read. he. I'm guessing that he won't, but 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 maybe he will. <laughs> you always hear these stories of like a family member picks it up and goes, "Hey, uh, you know, Uncle, Dad, Grandpa, you should. This is this is good. Like, you know, yeah. talk to me about it, and then maybe he'll have a change of heart. Who knows? Yeah. Uh, well, I I think I think he likes. Uh, I like I like I think he likes being mysterious. You know, not not yeah, me being mysterious, being distant, and it's and it's and it's convenient that that Blockbuster didn't file for bankruptcy until three years after he left. So yeah. so if you're not going to go study the story in depth, it's it's very easy to go. Well, I didn't have anything to do with that. I, I would, I've been gone for three years. Well, I, I I hope that people that read the book will come to different conclusions. Absolutely. So it comes out on March 9th, 2021. We'll March the 9th, and, and as I understand it, it'll be available, well, obviously on Amazon. It's in, it's in Kindle, it's in uh, paperback and hardback, and, it's, and it'll be available anywhere books are sold online, is how I understand it. That's what uh, I saw. Barnes & Noble and every, everybody. They'll all have it. The only question will be is... Is it going to be actually physically in stores? And that's going to depend on how successful it is. If it's successful, I'm sure people will see it in some stores. But, uh, you know, initially that won't be the case probably. But March, well, 9th, but March 9th, it's available. Well, I'll say this. Just, just from my experience of the half of the book that I've been through so far and just through this discussion with you, I think it would be anybody listening to this that's even a passive fan or um remembers the world of blockbuster or maybe is too young to remember it and wants to know more this is the book you have to read there's no story out there that's going to tell you this story and it's an important one and it it clears up a lot of misinformation that i think is out there and alan i am honored that you gave me the time that you did to talk about this and just thank you so much for putting this out into the world oh you bet it's great it was great to talk to you i enjoyed it well, Oh, same here. Um, so thank you, Alan, for being my guest. Thank you all, whoever is listening, for making this a Talkbuster night or day or whenever it is that you're taking this in. And please be kind, rewind, and we'll talk to you soon.